We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friend at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. We came very close to a catastrophic breakdown of our democratic accountability. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. Right now, we're kind of stuck in this cycle where every summer we're hearing another story about a big fire and a town burning down. It's still extremely difficult to hold government agencies accountable for abuses that take place in the name of national security. This is KCBS In-Depth. It's been more than two years since the pandemic closed down workplaces and forced office workers to set up shop at home. Now, several COVID surges and a whole lot of Zoom calls later, the offices are opening back up. But now that workers have had a taste of the remote work lifestyle, things are likely to look a little different. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Menconi, and today on the program, We're going to discuss why many companies have decided to continue giving employees a remote work option, even as the COVID risks fade. And then a bit later on in the program, we'll also consider why, during this moment of workplace change, some people are rethinking their relationship with work entirely. What are we working for? What is the thing that is most important to us? First up, though. The march back into the office has begun, with major companies firming up their reopening plans in recent weeks. So to get a sense of how this process might unfold, we're going to hear now from Nick Bloom. He's a professor of economics at Stanford University, and he's been helping to run a recurring survey since the early days of the pandemic, aimed at sizing up just how the work-from-home experiment has been going. Nick Bloom, welcome to KCBS In-Depth. Thanks for having me on. So starting off, let's talk a little bit about uh, what you've been turning up in those survey results. Uh, I guess the most obvious point might be uh, fair to say that in general, uh, workers who have been able to work from home have liked the experience? Yes. Yes. So, I mean, working from home overall has been an amazing success throughout the pandemic. Uh, I mean, we should point out that only about half of Americans can work from home. So half of you know people can't, unfortunately, but for those of us that can, it's been wildly popular and it looks like it's going to stick, but not full time. So it looks like, you know, what people want, what they're going to get is typically to work from home two, three days a week after the pandemic ends and go into the uh, workplace two, three days a week. Yeah. And 
it does look like there is going to, as you suggested there, be a, so something of a range of approaches that businesses are going to take. And that's sort of the news that's been coming out over the past couple of weeks. We've been hearing from various companies how they're going to approach this question and uh, a little bit of a spectrum that's starting to develop. On the one hand, we have Twitter, which has said that they're going to allow workers to come in basically whenever they want. Some workers may not come in at all. Then somewhere in the middle, we have Google, which is asking workers to come back uh, for three days a week. So sort of that hybrid workplace model that you just referenced there. Uh, And then finally, on the other end of the spectrum, we've got Goldman Sachs, which is asking its employees to return to a full five-day in-office work week, basically just back to before we were uh, where we were before the pandemic. Uh, So a lot of diversity there, Nick Bloom. Yes, (laughs) there is a lot of diversity. So You know, if you're a small company, it's worth knowing that around a quarter of people never want to work from home. They they really dislike it. They say it's lonely and isolating. And around a quarter of people love it, with the remaining half of us wanting something in between, wanting, you know, two, three days in the office, two, three days at home. So for small companies, you can say, look, we're just going to be an in-person company or a fully remote company. And most people don't like it. But our five, 10 employees that really like that are going to stick with us. I think for big companies, it makes much more sense to take something in the middle. So the Google plan to me seems pretty sensible. You know, the average employee wants to work from home two, three days a week and you give them what they want. I you know, honestly think Goldman Sachs is making a big mistake. There's a lot of chest beating amongst bankers saying, you know, we're in person people. You've got to come back. The folks that I know I've talked to in Goldman Sachs, you know, are not planning to go back full time. Some of them have said they're just going to quit if they're forced to go back. So I'm not even sure they're ever going to get there. The CEO has announced that that's their plan. It's not even clear they're ever going to make it. And I think they're going to find it so costly because so many people quit, say they hate working full time in the office that they're going to probably change their minds later this year. Speaking once again with Nick Bloom, professor of economics at Stanford University. So obviously companies are weighing some pretty hefty decisions at this moment, uh, trying to figure out exactly how they're going to approach these questions. What have we learned over the past two years about what companies get out of work from home employees? What have we learned about the productivity of these employees? What have we learned about the impacts of work from home on company culture and the ability of workers to collaborate and innovate together? What has this experiment turned up? Yeah, so I think we've learned, you know, there are a couple of really good reasons to come in the office. And they're firstly about innovation and creativity. It seems that people are more creative, more innovative when they work face to face. And secondly, it helps to build culture, you know, like connections, you know, your co-workers, you have a better sense of what's going on. But there's some big upsides of working from home. And the most obvious is we save a huge amount of time by avoiding commute. We save about 60 minutes a day on commute and we actually save an extra 10 minutes a day because we spend less time getting ready for work when we're at home. So people spend 20 minutes getting ready when they work from home, 30 minutes when they go into the office. The other benefit of working from home is it's quieter, or at least will be post-pandemic when you know all the kids are back at school. So you may think, look, there are benefits on both sides. The reason hybrid has come to dominate is it's kind of the best of both worlds. So Firms like, let's say, Apple, they've said you're going to come into the office Monday, Tuesday, Thursday. You have all your FaceTime, big meetings, client events, trainings, presentations, lunches, etc. Then, And then the upside is Wednesday, Friday, you do your quiet work and you save enough commute. And in that sense, it's turning out looking like 
kind of the best of both worlds. You can kind of have our cake and eat it if we design and execute hybrid well. Well, yeah, and that was kind of an interesting finding in your survey results is the workers themselves are expressing a preference for about two and a half days on average back in the office. You know, uh, I might have expected it to be no days back in the office, but even workers are saying we want to be back at least some of the time. Yeah, I mean, there's an enormous spread. So a quarter of people out there love working from home and never want to go back. So certainly that, you know, you think of there's a hundred and roughly 160 million working Americans, that's 40 million people that would love to work from home forever. But then the other three quarters want to go in at least one day a week. And then, you know, on average, we know across everyone, it's two to three. And I can kind of see why. I mean, you know, I like working from home. I like saving the commute. It's less stressful. It's a bit more flexible. But I also like going into work. And when I talk to employees, they say the same thing. In fact, we ask people, why do you like going into work? And the top two reasons were working with colleagues and then socializing with colleagues. Amusingly, spending time with their manager was number six, way, way down. You know, the free bagels, the ping pong tables, all that stuff is way down. People <laughs> yeah. basically want to go into work to be with their colleagues and work with their you know, co-workers. That's the big driver. Yeah, interesting. Uh, just going to reintroduce you once again real quick. Uh, we're speaking right now with Nick Bloom, professor of economics at Stanford University. This is KCBS In-Depth, talking a little bit about what the new workplace is going to look like after two years of many workers working from home, how much is going to change, how much is going to be the same. Uh, it depends a lot on which company you happen to be working for is what it sounds like. But Nick Bloom, if we are talking about a, a hybrid work model, there are some complexities here. I know that you have been looking into this for many, many years, what exactly this is going to be like. But for a lot of companies, this is really uncharted territory. What are the biggest questions that companies are going to have to figure out as they try to navigate this new terrain? So one thing for you know firms out there, I would say none of us know this is you know completely a brave new world. I would set up a policy and very clearly say this is going to be the policy for the rest of this year. At around December, we're going to survey the entire firm. We're going to talk to everyone. We're going to decide a, a long run policy for 2023 onwards. But for the rest of this year, I would advise hybrid. The big question I get asked is, should you let employees choose which days they're coming or should you coordinate? And broadly, I've been advising folks to try and coordinate, at least at the team or the company level. And the reason is when you talk to employees that return to the office when it's uncoordinated, they'll say things like, you know, I go into the office. But half the people aren't there. It's, you know, it's, it's kind of low energy. It's dead. I'm on Zoom most of the day. Like, why am I here to do this? I might as well work from home. So I would probably say, look, why don't we come into the office? Let's say Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. We know people like to work from home most on Mondays and Fridays. We're going to all try and come in, say, on those three days. They're going to be three lively days. They're going to be energized. We're going to have a lot of meetings, events together. Monday, Friday, enjoy the time at home. Or maybe we allow Wednesday as well as an extra work from home day if you're, say, going for a two, three plan. But something that's well signposted, that's well coordinated, and it's clear this is only for the rest of this year, and we're going to revisit this at Christmas. Maybe you stick with it, but maybe we figure out something better. Yeah. Another interesting finding that was turned up over the past two years, uh, maybe a lot of folks were already aware of this, but I think it's become more crystallized, is that some of the people that prefer work from home the most are women and people of color. And a lot of that just has to do with the flexibility uh, that is needed. Uh, talk a little bit about that finding and, and what's behind it. Yes. Yeah, so there's kind of two groups that you see prefer working from. One is 
who, you know, you find people with young kids, actually, whether it's men or women, prefer working more time, but not full time from home. But within that group, you're right, women particularly so. Folks with older age dependence, uh, disabled people have a slightly higher preference. People with long commutes. This is a group who you can think of, they prefer working from home for various logistical reasons. It's harder to get to work or they have more demands on their time at home. There's a second finding, which is people that you define as minorities in their workplace, which means less than 10% of their colleagues are in the same age, politics, uh, religion, race, or gender, also report lower preferences to go into the office. And here, I think it's more an issue of, do you feel more comfortable at work or do you feel you have to you know, act up or act in a different way because you're in some senses more different from your colleagues? And I think this highlights why in order to support diversity across many dimensions, I mean, obviously not just gender and race, but things about political views, religion, etc. It's important to allow people to work from home two, three days a week because it gives them a bit of breathing space. So as we're seeing across firms, one of the ways to support diversity is actually to have a reasonable, not excessive, but not none work from home policy. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, really, this is a policy and a set of questions that is going to touch just about every aspect of people's work lives. Uh, and just reflecting on how much has changed over the past two years, how much our expectations have changed over the past two years, uh, Nick Bloom, I mean, is it fair to say that this is one of the biggest upheavals in how Americans ha- are, are, are working and are going to work over the past many decades? Yeah, you know, it's hard to think of, you know, maybe World War Two, maybe World War One, when you're rearmed, you know, there's a you can hear I'm British, but a big deal for Britain was, you know, the wars, because suddenly before then women didn't used to work. And, you know, the men were sent off to fight and they the women entered the arms factories and they discovered, you know, now it seems obvious, but women work just as well as men in these factories. And that, you know, that stuck with us. I think the pandemic is going to be very similar with working from home. We were I've been working on this for almost 20 years and pre-pandemic people were deeply skeptical and would say things like, working from home, shirking from home, or working remotely, remotely working. The pandemic has just vaporized that view, and it is clearly here to stay. In fact, I was talking to a recruiter earlier in the week, and she was saying, you know what? You know, I tell my clients now, unless you're offering a work-from-home job, forget it, or you've got to pay 20% more because everyone wants to work two, three days a week from home. No one, this is from IT, no one is taking these fully in-person jobs unless there's a lot of extra cash. Yeah. When, and I suppose there's still a lot more to shake out, but uh, your prediction, the hybrid model is going to be the one that catches on most broadly. You think that's uh, here to stay? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, I don't, it, it's a dangerous game predicting too far yeah. out, but certainly for the next six months, hybrid looks like it's dominating. I would have thought, you know, probably next two to three years. After that, technology could change. I mean, imagine virtual reality. We may discover mm. that, you know, virtual reality is so great that in 10 years time, you know, we hardly ever come into work. Um, but yeah, it, you know, if it were my business or my, uh, I was working with folks, I'd suggest hybrid for the rest of this year and then reassess at Christmas. Yeah, well, a lot more to shake out, but uh, certainly for folks that can stay home, uh, a lot of better work opportunities and work situations on offer as well. So uh, happy working, everybody. Uh, we have been speaking right here to Nick Bloom. He once again is a professor of economics at Stanford University. Nick Bloom, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me on.
We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. Today in the program, we're considering what the return to the office is going to look like after two years of widespread remote work. And those two years have taught us an awful lot about our jobs. As we've been hearing, we learned that for a lot of people, remote work actually works pretty well. Meanwhile, all that time away from the office has also given many a new perspective on their work. And what they learned is, it's just not making them all that happy. So what does that mean for us, worker bees, as we figure out what work is going to look like in this post-lockdown moment? Well, our next guest has a few ideas. That's writer Jonathan Molesic. He's written a new book called The End of Burnout, Why Work Drains Us and How to Build Better Lives. Jonathan Molesic, welcome to KCBS In-Depth. Thank you so much for having me. So with so much about how we worked, uh, where we work, changing right now, uh, fair to say that there might be something of an opportunity to rethink our relationship to work as well? Yeah, for sure. I, I think that you can think of the pandemic in addition to, of course, being a total public health and societal catastrophe with massive losses in, in so many different ways, and, and especially the loss of life. It has also been a massive experiment. We shook up so many aspects of our lives and particularly our working lives and see how they do. Uh, See, you know, shake them up and sort of see what's inside. And we found that, you know, we had the uh, experiment of so many people working from home. We had a very kind of troubling experiment of so many frontline workers being under so much pressure. And we also had an experiment of, well, what happens if tens of millions of people can earn a living wage through the unemployment insurance supplements without having to work at all? And I think that it's going to take years for us to figure out what the results of these experiments are. But I think that one thing that we're seeing is that we we aren't so content with the way that work was working for us prior to the pandemic. And I think that a lot of workers are ready for some kind of change. Yeah, and you sum that discontent up in uh, one word in the title of your book, Burnout. Uh, So what does burnout mean and how is it showing up in people's lives? 
burnout, I think of as the experience of being stretched across a gap between your ideals for work and the reality of your job. Because the fact is that in the United States, we have extremely high ideals for work. We expect not just a paycheck from our jobs, but we expect dignity. We expect meaning. We expect people to prove their moral character through work. And the fact is that jobs don't always live up to that. Uh, that, that promise is so lofty that almost no actual job can live up to it. And when we live in that gap long enough, we eventually experience what is called burnout. And that, like you said, has become kind of a key word for understanding what has happened over the last two years, though, of course, burnout has been a growing problem uh, for for the last 40 or 50 years. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about how you came to this topic yourself. Uh, by the way, uh, for those just joining us, speaking right now to Jonathan Malesic, who once again uh, wrote a new book, uh, The End of Burnout, Why Work Drains Us and How to Build Better Lives. Uh, you've actually had a number of different jobs over the years, uh, university professor, parking lot attendant, sushi chef, not quite the work trajectory that many of, uh, of us would expect to see on a CV. Uh, and uh, furthermore, our listeners might be surprised to find out which of those jobs brought you the mo- most workplace satisfaction. So tell us a little bit about that and how it brought to you to, uh, to these questions about burnout. Right. Yeah. My So my dream job for you know my entire 20s, basically, was to be a college professor. And so I went to graduate school uh, in religious studies. And uh, I got my PhD and did not get an academic job. I did not get that dream job right away. And so I went to work at a parking lot directly across the street from the university where I had just gotten a PhD. Oh, wow. And I went into that with very low expectations. And I think that the reason that that, that job was so satisfying, hmm. and I did that for a year, I didn't want to make my career out of it, but yeah. it was very satisfying because I my expectations were low. I didn't expect it to fulfill me, and the conditions were pretty good. I was paid reasonably well. I had great coworkers. Mm. Uh, I had a wonderful boss, and the job stayed out of my way. Mm. The cars did not follow me home at the <laughs> end of a shift. Yeah, and then when I got that academic job. I went in with the highest possible expectations. I thought it was totally going to fulfill me. Mm. And, you know, it did pretty well for a while. But once the conditions started to erode, once I wasn't having my, you know, once I wasn't meeting those emotional uh, needs, mm. then things went downhill very, very rapidly and ended with burnout. So let's connect that experience then with some of those broader questions you just brought up. In particular, let's talk first about what it has to say about our culture of work in the United States, because we do hold work up as this thing that is going to bring a lot of meaning to our lives. We, in a lot of cases, sort of base our self-worth on the sort of job that we have. If you have a good job, you have more self-worth. If you have a bad job, you have less self-worth. But as uh, your story just indicates, there might be some flaws in that story that we're telling ourselves. 
Right. Absolutely. I, I think that because we build so many expectations into work, any deviation from those expectations can be catastrophic for our understanding of who we are. And so I think that in the months, years, and decades to come, we have to lower the stakes of work. We have to lower the stakes in some ways financially by making it less of a, a make or break option for you, whether you uh, are employed at all, whether you have a, a good job. Um, but we also have to lower the, the moral and social stakes of work so that everything doesn't hinge on your job being as good as possible. And I think that the that begins by recognizing the inherent dignity of every single person, whether they work or not. I always like to think about little kids who we think of as having tremendous worth, but they don't work. And then those kids grow up and we start to judge them if they are not identifying themselves as workers. Well, in fact, they didn't really lose their dignity along the way. We just kind of were blind to it. Uh, we forgot about their dignity in a sense. And so I think that we need to start recognizing that dignity that people have when they're born and that they carry with them through adulthood regardless of their work status. So what would uh, what would a job or what would a life look like that was taking some of these thoughts more into account? Are there models out there that you think people should be taking, paying more attention to at this moment? Yeah, and I think that we have to look kind of to the fringes of mainstream society in order to find some of those models. We need to look for people who are living good lives and that is to say, you know, lives that are flourishing, you know, materially, morally, and so on, socially, but that don't have work at the center of them. And so when I went looking for some of those models, uh, one place I looked was in a monastery uh, of Benedictine monks in the desert of northern New Mexico, these monks live well off the grid. They generate their own electricity uh, and they live, you know, as far as, as they can from, uh, from the rest of society. They, their driveway is a 13-mile long dirt road. Hmm. And they, the most important thing to them is communal prayer. And they spend five or six hours a day praying together in their chapel. And they also have to work but they confine that work to about three or four hours in the mornings, and then they're done. They have to go back and, and pray and meditate and do all these other things, and they're up very early in the morning to do that. And I think that that is a... I don't think that we all have to go and live in, a, in the desert in a monastery, uh, but yeah. I do think that there's a lesson there for people who live in the secular world to figure out, well, what are we working for? What is the thing that is most important to us? And then how can we fit work in around that most important thing so that work is 
work is helping us toward that goal, but not interfering with it. Yeah. Well, I guess just in closing, how do you think that people should be using those questions right now as they are sorting out this turbulent moment of work-life balance and where they're going to work and for what company they're going to work? How do people actually apply this in this particular moment? I think that the simplest and most effective way to start is just to talk with people in your life about your ideals for work and the reality of your job. And you know, think about the ideals, how your ideals for work may have changed over the course of your life. How have they changed over the course of the last two years? And have those ideals been fulfilled or not? It may be that many people are expecting way too much from work, and that is why they're consistently disappointed. But it may also be that people will realize, well, wait, I, my needs have never been satisfied by a job, and they'll need to figure out ways to, to, to find ways that those needs can be satisfied on the job and, and out of it. I think that, you know, I would love to see a society that has work a little further from the center, but we would have to have something to replace it with. And so we have to simultaneously rebuild civic society in order to find meaning and purpose and a good social life there. Yeah. Well, uh, one way or another, certainly a lot of big changes at the workplace uh, right now. We have been hearing from Jonathan Malesic. He's a writer who has some ideas for how to navigate those big changes at this particularly interesting moment. Uh, his book is The End of Burnout, Why Work Drains Us, and How to Build Better Lives. Jonathan Malesic, thanks so much. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Manconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 